Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, now Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. At the start of a new year, we've got plenty to talk about and plenty to consider as investors. I think we've all learned from 2020 that the predictions are a tough gig and uh, none of us would like to go back and look at what we said at the beginning of that year. But all the same, the current economic environment is incredibly complex and there is a lot to keep in mind as we look ahead to help understand what the major issues are for 2021 and what we should be thinking about. Today, I'm joined by Diana Messina, Senior Economist at AMP Capital. Diana, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you too. <laughs> so I've been reading quite a bit of your commentary. You guys do a fabulous job of putting your thoughts out in the market about what's going on. There is so much going on at the moment. And you've noticed that there are some pretty good reasons why markets rebounded so quickly in 2020. They've rallied actually really hard, even from some of the comments you were making then. And now in the US anyway, they're at record highs. What are your thoughts about where we find ourselves? There are a lot of conflicting factors here. On the one hand, you could say, well, share markets are at record highs and you've still got an economic backdrop that looks uh, tenuous. There are still concerns that growth will take a while to get back to its pre-COVID levels, obviously because we haven't got COVID completely under control. COVID cases are still rising on a daily basis around the world. We're now seeing pockets of a mutant strain of the virus, which is harder to control. So on the one hand, you've got this negative view around why share markets are likely to perhaps underperform in 2021, given such a strong rally over the past nine months uh, after the pandemic started in March in 2020. However, on the other hand, you also have a record amount or close to record amount of monitoring fiscal stimulus that's now working together to boost economic activity. And while, yes, economic growth is unlikely to get back to its pre-COVID levels probably until the end of this year, you've got this massive impulse of stimulus coming through, which is supporting profits for businesses. And at the same time, interest rates have been cut again to further record lows. And for investors, it it doesn't give you many options about where to invest. If you want to invest in safe haven government bond type of products, the return that you're going to get on those is quite low. So there is still this massive search for yield environment and asset classes like share markets, uh, which are more derived on, on, on a growth basis, are still likely to do quite well, I think, in 2021 because interest rates are going to remain at current levels, I don't see rate hikes coming through in the next few years at least, and you've still got support from massive fiscal and monetary stimulus around the world, especially in the US. And with the vaccine rollout, I think uh, that should be a very positive move to get back to some level of pre-COVID norms, although I don't think that will completely happen until sometime next year. So you've mentioned the vaccine rollout, and this is fascinating right it's been a few weeks since I last recorded a podcast and we were all feeling super positive going into the end of 2020 Australia had you know 
almost no community transmission. We were feeling really great about the vaccine rollout. We're thinking, fine, March is great, we'll all be okay. And then now we've had border closures again and Australia is starting to sort of feel a pinch again with COVID. As you say, in the US, you know, the case numbers are extraordinary. The number that I, I haven't quite gotten over since I read it is that one in a 1,000 US citizens have died from COVID. Mm. So 300,000 deaths, 300 million people, one in a thousand, just eye-watering numbers, absolutely eye-watering. So with that as a backdrop, you know, we're feeling so confident, things are actually not, not quite as great as we might have imagined. What's your thesis about the rollout and this idea of a return to normal level of activity? Do you think things are going to be pretty quick? Are they going to take a long time? How is it going to play out? It, it will depend country by country. Obviously, the developed large Western nations who have secured enough vaccines to uh, vaccinate their whole populations will come out of this a lot stronger compared to some of those emerging countries, developing nations that haven't secured those vaccines that might not have enough funds to be able to pay for them or they've only secured enough to vaccinate a certain proportion of their population. At the moment, in terms of um, the number of vaccinations per person around the world, Israel is actually leading the globe on this in terms of the number of vaccinations that have been given per person there, followed by um, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and the US. So there are countries that are starting to roll out these vaccinations, but it will take a long time to reach uh, the level of immunity that you need for the population. I mean, the scientists are still not sure what level of immunity you actually need, uh, what proportion of the population needs to be vaccinated before you can kind of reopen your economy more normally. Is it 60% of the population? Is it 70? Is it 80? I think it depends how the vaccine works in the population. Does it get impacted by these mutant strains? So far, apparently the scientists say that the mutant strains shouldn't impact the vaccine, but I think it's too early to tell. Obviously, the take-up of the vaccine as well by, by people, will there be concerns by some? So the theme for this year, I think, for the majority of the year, will just be trying to vaccinate the population. Uh, and I don't see a complete return to normality until sometime, perhaps in the middle of next year. And this is talking about, you know, getting the travel sector back to normal, getting tourism back to normal, some sectors will, will be able to operate as per normal. In, in a lot of parts of Australia, uh, you, you can see that because the COVID cases are so low. A lot of restaurants in regional areas can operate without many restrictions in place because COVID hasn't really impacted those um, regional areas. But for those big industries, especially travel and tourism, that are obviously getting hit the hardest by this, uh, it will still take some time to get back to normal. So the middle of next year is kind of my base case. So middle of next year, you were talking 18 months away? Yeah, I think that that would be pretty fair. And then even for emerging markets, it might be even even a bit longer than that. Um, but it, it does depend on how fast the vaccine rollout comes through this year, whether potentially there are more vaccine providers that are approved uh, because there's only really one vaccine that's been approved so far that's likely to be used by some of the more developing emerging nations because it's cheaper and you can administer it without as many conditions around its storage. So if we get more providers uh, that are approved, then you may see um, faster rollout, but it, it really is all reliant on that. It's a really interesting perspective. I think some of us who were a little bit hopeful when we saw the first uh, the first approvals 
moderating those those hopes and those expectations has been an interesting experience. On the idea of a return to normal, and I apologise this question without notice, but I'm, I'm so interested in it and I'm hearing such different perspectives. I spoke to NAB's chief economist last year who was of the view that the way that we use property is going to change pretty dramatically as a result of this, that we will many people will love continuing to work from home. That's how they're going to do their daily working lives. And there'll be sort of real interest in regional and particularly coastal property people sort of looking for that work-life balance uh, and much more attractive places to live than the sort of CBD commute. And then I talked to a fund manager who was of the view that everyone was is just desperate to get back to the city and that things mm-hmm. will return to the normal really, to normal really soon. Do you have a view on that? I think that... People tend to forget uh, things that happened in the past. So while over the past year everyone's kind of gotten used to this sense of uh, working from home, this is going to stay around forever, I'm going to buy a dog because I'm going to be at home forever and I can look look after my dog in the backyard, I don't think that that will be uh, the way uh, that we will go. I think there will definitely be uh, more acceptance of working from home uh, because obviously we can do it, which is what's been demonstrated this year. But uh, I do think that there will be a push by, um, especially corporate, uh, by corporates to get their people back to work. The majority of um, corporate Australia was already considering getting their staff back to work at some time at the beginning of this year. And unfortunately, the clusters that happened over the Christmas period have kind of derailed those plans. But I'm not of the view that we're going to see this death of the office. I think that the office is still important in terms of uh, as a hub for people to connect, um, build relationships, depending on the kind of role that you do as well. It, It can be difficult to work from home if you're dealing with clients on client sites or if you're a consultant. Uh, so I, I definitely don't uh, subscribe to the view that there's going to be a death of the office, but uh, there definitely will be more working from home and the demand for regional uh, homes, I think, in Sydney and Melbourne will still be very important. So I do, I am more optimistic on property price growth for Sydney and Melbourne regional areas compared to the CBDs and inner city areas. And also because there's just more, uh, the, the inner city areas have been the ones that have benefited the most from construction over the past few years. So there should be less demand for them now, a little bit of oversupply for them, which kind of puts downward pressure on those, on those, um, prices too. And I think it also depends on what, uh, country you're talking about, because in, uh, I've seen some interesting charts from, um, the U S and Europe in terms of people who, uh, want to work from home and those who don't. And in the U S for example, only about 20% of people don't, uh, about 20% of people uh, want to work from home after the pandemic is over, whereas in Europe it's actually about 55% of people um, who who want to work from home. So I, it really just depends as well on the kind of environment that you're in and the kind of um, obviously corporate setup that you have. But uh, I don't think that the death of the office is here to stay. Such an interesting perspective in that that insight about the US and Europe is really interesting. Australia is interesting to the extent that we have, you know, the most urbanised population in the world. We think we're 
you this big wide open land. Like, sure, it's mostly empty though. Um, and uh, mostly we all look at live in big cities and uh, and and as close as we can to the CBD. But Europe's really interesting. You would imagine given that a lot of houses are very small, so the US has the largest houses in the world closely followed by mm. Australia, that people would be happy to work at home in their large houses. They're like, no, I want to go to the city. That's what I want to do. And in Europe, yeah. I would like to work in my tiny home. In Australia, one of the big problems as well is uh, we are very dense in the capital cities and the reason for that is I think that because the infrastructure just isn't there to be able to allow fast commute times between um, the, the capital city and then some of the regional areas, if you could commute from Sydney to the central coast or even to the south coast within you know 45 minutes on a fast train that might change people's perspectives but that's not really the case we don't have those kinds of facilities which is something that needs to be considered here I think that there needs to be some decent infrastructure upgrades if we're going to um, be talking about you know expanding where people live and trying to get the populations less dense in the capital cities whereas in uh, London and the US and Europe, they don't have as many of these problems with infrastructure and transport particularly because they do have better means of transport between the capital cities and some of the more outer regional areas. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I'm changing tack a little bit here, but we would be so remiss not to talk about it. So since my last recording, Joe Biden's actually secured a majority in the Senate in the US. So the Democrat now has secured this blue wave. When uh, when I published a recording back prior to the US election about the potential outcomes, there, there were three possibilities. So one was that, uh, the, that Biden would win the presidency, which was sort of assumed to be the, the likely outcome. Uh, Trump would lose. That uh, the Republicans, however, would hang on to the Senate. That there would be a blue wave as the alternative, which is that the Democrats would have the, the House and the Senate and therefore be much more likely to pass legislation and then Joe Biden would get the presidency. And then there was also this issue of a contested election. Everyone agreed the contested election was the worst possible outcome and that was kind of what we ended up with. And yet everyone was fine. Markets rallied. Everyone was perfectly fine with it all. So it's been quite astonishing. And then in the runoff, we've got this blue wave now with, I mean, it's only by a couple of seats, it's pretty close, but we have uh, uh, the Democrats holding both houses and the presidency. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah, I think it's uh, pretty hilarious that this idea of a contested election was initially seen as bad and then it's kind of been seen as good and it kind of ebbs and flows depending on uh, how the market sees pricing of the fiscal stimulus package that's passed. The Democrats have been talking about a much larger stimulus package compared to the Republicans. So when there was news of a potential Democratic blue wave, uh, which is what's happened with the Georgia Senate runoff, uh, markets are now taking that as a positive because it means that the US is likely to pass another probably two or three trillion dollars worth of stimulus over the next six to 12 months, which is huge. I mean, that's something that's worth more than 10% of GDP growth in, in the US. It will be, uh, it will be extremely large for that country. Um, there are a few uh, complicating factors here, as there kind of always are. Uh, with 
the negatives of the Democrats controlling both houses of um, Congress is mainly around the notion that the, uh, Joe Biden has been talking about increasing taxation uh, for corporate taxes, so to reverse some of those tax cuts that Trump put in place um, with his Tax Cuts and, and Jobs Act when he uh, came into office. So the corporate tax rate could potentially rise from 21% to 28%, which is what Biden was talking about. It's more likely to go from about 21 to 24 or 25%. That's kind of seems to be more what the Democrats are talking about now. Also increasing the highest uh, marginal rate of taxation for the highest income groups. So it's mainly around uh, trying to uh, increase tax rates, not for middle-income consumers, but mainly for corporates and also for households. But nevertheless, uh, higher taxes generally tend to be negative for business profits uh, on an overall basis. So you may see some negative impacts to corporate earnings, which obviously impacts share markets because corporate earnings are what share market prices are partly based on. But then you will probably get some offsets from higher fiscal spending that's likely to occur because the Democrats are in power. Uh, and at the same time, the Democrat policies of higher taxes might be tempered by uh, some more of the conservative or some of the more moderate Democrats that don't want to uh, put in place higher taxes. We've already seen some of these ideas floating about. Uh, the Democrats still need a majority to pass any policies through the Senate. Um, currently, they they obviously do have a majority because they won these two extra seats. Uh, but just because they have a simple majority doesn't mean that they can pass everything that they want to because they're obviously some more um, moderate or conservative Democrats that also need to be taking the vote. In terms of some of the more longer-term uh, prospects from a blue wave, I think that the biggest things are higher infrastructure spending, which Biden has been talking about, higher spending on uh, climate-related issues and, uh, generally speaking, a, um, a US Congress that's dominated by the Democrats tends to be more positive for non-US share markets than for US share markets. So our general view was that a Biden presidency would be um, positive for non-US shares and with the confirmation that now the Democrats have complete control of Congress, I think that this cements our view even further that non-US share markets are likely to, to perform better this year. Um, US dollar is likely to see some further weakness as well based on these issues. Uh, so uh, these are the types of things that we, we would be considering in asset allocation processes and, and decisions. That's a really interesting point about the support for non-US share markets. Can you talk to me about what you see as the drivers are for that? I mean, a lot of this is domestic policy. The climate-related stuff is obviously not just domestic. Um, it has a sort of global impact, whether it's domestic spending or not. But what are your thoughts on what is driving that? Is it just a reallocation issue? Well, generally, if, uh, if you would have seen a Trump presidency, you probably would have seen more support for the US dollar because the types of policies that would have been put in place, so the types of things would have been more um, trade tensions with China, which tends to put increased um, pressure on the US dollar, higher tariffs, um, which again increases the US dollar. When you have a weaker US dollar, 
you generally tend to see more support for or you tend to see better performance of non-US um, share markets. And again, this, um, this idea of a US first, America first, which would have been a case under a Trump presidency, would have probably had more support for uh, some of those US-based shares, maybe some more of those tech names that have obviously that have a very large share in uh, the US share market in the S&P 500, um, which would have been further boosted by higher US dollars. So those are generally the thematics that we would see play out. Uh, And I guess it's just we're trying to think about it in a relative point of view. Uh, If you have a Trump versus a Biden outcome, what are the relative sectors that would perform better? And under a Biden outcome, we see lower US dollar and better performance of of non-US share markets for that reason. A really interesting one. And you made some comments earlier as well about, uh, I guess, developing economies and how they are likely to struggle a little bit uh, with rolling out of vaccines. But on the flip side, a lot of them have done this extraordinary job of controlling the virus, uh, which a very first world economy like the US has not done so well. So it's been it's been really interesting to see how different economies in different countries have, mm. have managed the complexity of the last 12 months. Yeah, I think in some of the developing emerging markets, from what I've read, because of lower travel that that generally tends to go on, um, less mobility of people moving around just because of less transport um, and less need to move around for work and that and those types of things, that has uh, led to lower transmission of the virus in some places like like Africa, but then in other parts like in South America, they've obviously had extremely negative outcomes in places like Brazil. Uh, so it just it just depends. Um, but it's definitely positive to see that uh, emerging markets aren't the, um, aren't the countries at the moment that have the biggest problems. The biggest problems at the moment, I think, are in Europe in terms of COVID cases. Yeah, it's, um, it's still hanging over us, isn't it? Um, so you made some comments earlier, well, right at the very beginning, actually, about monetary stimulus and how it's been just such an extraordinary driver of market optimism, not just optimism, I mean, it's very much for many, and I see this with investors all the time, right, so this is mums and dads and retirees and everybody going, well, there's nothing to be gained by holding my money in cash. I really need to look elsewhere to get a return on my savings or investments. Can you talk us to us about, first of all, where monetary stimulus is at? Because it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I keep thinking about everything I learned at uni and how basically none of it's true anymore. Um, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. where we find ourselves in terms of monetary stimulus around the world and then where we possibly can go from here. Well, the only option really from here is for central banks to do more asset purchases because all global, the major global central banks have exhausted interest rate cuts, pretty much except for China. They still have some room to move. Um, their interest rates are just over 3% or so, depending on which one you look at. So uh, they still have room to cut interest rates if they need to. Whereas all the other major central banks, including Australia here, uh, we've kind of exhausted all those options because we've been cutting interest rates over the past decade. So the only options from here are to increase the value of um, government bonds and other types of assets that central banks hold on their balance sheet. The purpose of doing that is to inject money into the economy to get banks to lend to corporates, to households, 
uh, to small businesses and that should generate more activity in the economy. Obviously, that transmission has been quite slow, which is why over the past few years before COVID happened, we were stuck in a situation globally where the majority of global economies still had some spare capacity. Unemployment rates were still higher than where they had been over the past few years. Uh, I guess the US was kind of the only exception to that. So talking about Europe and Australia. Um, So there was always this need to get fiscal policy to do more of the heavy lifting. And that is what COVID has brought to it. I mean, obviously not for a positive reason, but fiscal policy spending has been the major driver of policy stimulus over the past year across the world. Uh, in terms of what central banks can still do this year and how we see how we see that playing through, I think that the majority of them will just keep their asset purchase programs as they are intact. Uh, the US, the value of assets as a proportion of GDP is moving to about um, 50 or 60 percent of, of GDP in Australia. Assets on the central bank's balance sheet is moving to over 25 and around 30% of GDP and in Europe and in Japan, it's obviously much higher in Japan. It's even, it's even over a hundred percent. So the asset purchase programs likely to remain intact this year. Um, perhaps they might do a bit more at the margin, but not really anything to be too drastic just because they can't really do that much more compared to what they're already doing. And just to keep that forward guidance in place that they don't expect interest rates to be hiked for a number of years and that they'll you know, keep watching the inflation principle. Inflation is likely to remain low and that will give investors confidence that, that interest rates are likely to be kept at very low levels. Do you have a thesis about whether we'll be in any position to return to normal interest rates at any point in time. Years ago when I was giving advice to people um, as a financial advice, as a as a licensed advisor, um, and, and people would come to me talking about, you know, wanting to borrow to buy a house and whatever, and they would always sort of use the lowest interest rate they could possibly find. I'd say, look, you need to think about rates increasing by 3%. And we've got to find that in now. I'm like, well, that was just completely useless information. <laughs> Rates dropped dramatically since then, and uh, and they've been able to uh, to afford vastly more than all my very conservative advice would have helped them to uh, to afford. So it wasn't very helpful, was it? Um, but I'm I'm fascinated by twelve years of interest rate cuts to zero, and it appears like there's no economic data that would encourage a central bank to return rates to normal. I mean, so few central banks have tried. Um, I'm fascinated to know what you think might be a catalyst. Are you worried about reinflation? That's something that concerns you. I know some people are talking about it. Yeah, I think that in the medium term, inflation might still be a problem. We have so much fiscal stimulus going on at the moment uh, to obviously support the economy through COVID. Uh, But the economic rebound has actually been pretty good across the majority of the world and stronger than what we were anticipating when we went into this. So if this level of fiscal support continues coupled with monetary policy that's still extremely accommodative, I can see a situation where in one or two years' time you do get uh, some signs of inflation. Household incomes in developed countries have actually been boosted over the COVID pandemic despite the fact that the labour market has weakened because you've, get, you've received all these offsets from the government 
Um, if you think about Australia, for example, think about all the huge amounts of payments that people have received over the past uh, 12 months, JobKeeper, JobSeeker, Supplement, free childcare, mortgage deferrals, early access to superannuation. In the US, they're giving people stimulus checks and un a higher unemployment benefit claims. We we've also had welfare assistance here, a few rounds of um, payments to low and middle income households. We've had tax cuts as well. So in a lot of these developed countries, consumer incomes have actually improved rather than gone negative during the pandemic. So I can see uh, some risks of inflation down the track, but I think it's more of a medium-term story and the central banks aren't worried about it for now. Any interest rate hikes that will happen will have to be done at a very slow pace because of the level of debt that's now been accumulated by um, households around the world. So uh, interest rate hikes can happen. I just think that they will have to be done extremely slowly and they won't be able to go very high. You know, we're not talking about interest rates of over 5% around the world. Um, talking about interest rates of 2% maybe kind of, and that's kind of reaching a situation where you have very good economic conditions. Yeah, even 2% for, you know, six or seven increases, right? They're not going to increase rates yeah. by 1% in one go. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be ever so slowly increasing them. And as you say, household debt, yeah, Australia is famous for having some of the highest household debt in the world. I can't imagine it's improved dramatically despite incomes improving. So uh, extraordinary situation we find ourselves in. So you've been talking about fiscal stimulus and I'd love to talk about this also particularly because we are at something like, uh, like a transition point in Australia. It feels to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, that fiscal stimulus to households will be withdrawn long before monetary stimulus will because we have JobKeeper and JobSeeker, but JobKeeper will be finishing full stop and JobSeeker will be reduced. Um, yeah, and its previous levels were very, very low, very difficult for people to live on, particularly in a capital city. What are your thoughts about the implications of that, whether they'll be extended, whether they'll be reduced and 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 with a really hard lid on where they where they stay for the future and what sort of impact that's likely to have on households well so far job keeper uh, payments have been cut um, in in early October the new payment rate started didn't seem to impact um, the data at all despite the fact that Victoria was still in uh, towards the end of its lockdown but was obviously still still in those lockdown conditions if uh, JobKeeper is meant to finish at the end of March. If we are in the same situation in Australia that we're in at the moment where you kind of have a few cases um, about in some states, not in all states, and I think uh, that the, the end of JobKeeper will be okay uh, because you have enough momentum in the economy to support business incomes. That's ultimately what JobKeeper was meant to do to support business income so that they could employ their staff. Uh, without restrictions in place, businesses can operate to some, you know, to some capacity of where they were before COVID. Problems will arise, though, if we go back into lockdowns. And uh, we clearly saw that in December in New South Wales, the Northern Beaches was locked down for three or four weeks. Uh, I mean, obviously, it wasn't as long as the initial period was in March when the nation went, went into a lockdown. Uh, but it would still obviously have impacted businesses in that region quite significantly. 
So there will be issues if uh, if we do go into lockdowns again, which is impossible to predict, right? No one predicted that you would get that, the um, Avalon outbreak that you had in December. If that were to happen, though, I think that the government might put in place some, you know, short-term support for businesses that might help them. And I guess that we've also learned how to deal better with, with COVID, you know, maybe just lock down specific pockets rather than the whole of Sydney or the whole state, which is what happened in um, March, just to lock down a few areas so you're not impacting um, the whole economy as as much if you're just doing pockets of uh, lockdown. So I think that the uh, tapering of, of JobKeeper is necessary because you can't support businesses artificially forever uh, if we are getting back to, you know, some level of COVID normal, then it, it makes sense to slowly withdraw that support. And I think the government support has been extremely generous in Australia. So uh, I'm not um, of the view that we've got this fiscal cliff coming through. I think that there's enough support in the economy and enough momentum to sustain uh, economic growth over 2021. Quite a few people will find that comforting, I think. It's, um, it's, it's been an interesting one. I, I was very much of the same view and then uh, lockdowns over Christmas were a bit of a shock. Um, and I think your point about much more targeted support where it's necessary uh, will be really interesting. You feel for the tourism sector mm. really badly. It's been a hell of a year for them. And then we've got a new year and things haven't quite taken off the way they would hope. Um, so targeted support might be attractive and necessary. We've covered an awful lot of ground uh, and investors uh, need to keep a lot of different things in mind. What are, to your mind, the biggest things for people to keep an eye on this year? Uh, Vaccine rollout is really important and to see how, you know, how it affects the population. Does it affect how people's mobility changes? Mobility is really important in terms of how it impacts the economic data because, uh, well, we see that when mobility increases, you normally tend to get boosts to things like retail spending, um, obviously eating out and that and that type of thing as well. So if vaccine changes mobility and you can kind of get back to a more normal level of growth, uh, I think that's I think that's quite important. The U.S. politics in terms of uh, how Biden and his administration want to go about um, doing things, whether the tax hikes that we've been speaking about today, whether whether they get through, I think that, that will be quite important for the US and what tack they take with China. Uh, I don't think that there'll be any removal of the current tariffs that they have in place with China that that Trump um, that Trump has put in place in his presidency. Uh, but will they you know will they take a, still a um, tough stance on China? I think that yes they will, but they won't go down the path of of um, doing tariff hikes, maybe they'll go down the path of taking them to the World Trade Organization to talk about some of these issues that they have. Australia and China obviously have had a very strained relationship over the past few months as well and how this plays out, whether more Australian exports get targeted um, in these these, uh, trade tensions. That's a big big X factor for Australia in terms of its growth profile this uh, year as well. So much to keep an eye on, <laughs> so much to think about. It's um, it's extraordinary, uh, I guess, the various issues that investors need to uh, to keep aware of. Deanna, AMP Capital produces a wealth of insights, including uh, a lot of your insights on a number of different issues. You've got global reach. Uh, you produce a lot of fascinating thoughts and bring them to the attention of individual investors. How do people keep up to date with what you're working on? 
Yeah, we've got a lot of resources available on the AMP Capital website. Um, if you go to the AMP Capital Insights Hub, you can see all the publications that, that I've put in place. I have a publication called Econocytes and Shane Oliver, who's our Chief Economist, obviously has his Oliver's Insights there as well. So if you're interested in uh, some of the more longer-term thematic pieces, you can uh, find all those things there and then some of the more timely market indicators, weeklies and, and that type of thing are there as well. Gianna Messina from AMP Capital, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received some fantastic feedback and we love to get your questions. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.